adventure has a name. It must be Indiana Jones. From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Indiana Jones. I said, well, you know what? I've always wanted to direct a James Bond picture. And George, so I, I got that beat. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I have a better idea. It's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I sat down and kind of told him a story about this archaeologist and how it was like a Saturday matinee serial, and you got in one mess after another, and he just said, fantastic, let's do this. at Marshall College. Welcome to Blast Points, episode number 251. This is our first installment of Indie Year. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. And it's finally Indie Year. Yeah, like we said last week, too, the funny thing is, this is something we've wanted to do since we started the podcast. I think in like the first months or something of doing Blast Points, we were like, yeah, and then maybe one day... If people actually listen to this thing, we could do something about Indiana Jones. <laughs> Finally, the time is right. What's well, the? It's the 40th anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was 40 years ago, June 81, that uh, yeah, Raiders came out, and we were introduced to this whole crazy thing. We said last week, Star Wars's cousin, when Star Wars has parties, its cousin Indy is always invited. Yeah, it's younger cousin Indy who shows up late, gets into a fist fight in the backyard, but then tells the best stories over dinner. <laughs> but he's getting straight A's in in, in college, so you let it go. But yeah, I'm super excited for this year. I mean, we yeah we're following in the tradition of uh, Phantom Menace year and Saga year last year, and this year, yeah, once a month, the last episode of every month, always talking about Indiana Jones stuff. 
we've got a lot of really fun stuff planned for the rest of the year. I can't wait. It's no big surprise that I think we're both really big Indiana Jones fans. People talk about what things are you into besides Star Wars, like of like stuff. That's a, my number two has always been Indiana Jones. Like that's the the one thing I get the most freak out over is indie stuff. And sometimes it's, it's like indie stuff is like rare. So when I do get like my Indiana Jones freakouts, it's maybe sometimes more intense. Well, yeah, it's probably definitely more special because there is there's there's less of it. So whatever you get is much more cherished. But it is still in the and you know, and we'll get into it over the years as, as well of just how interconnected, you know, Star Wars and Indiana Jones is behind the scenes and beneath the surface, that kind of feeling carries over and it and it makes sense that that would be your two favorite things because they're kind of they use to have the same ingredients, just different recipes. Well, you know, a lot of those ingredients, the people that made Star Wars, there's a lot of people that went on from the the original film into Raiders and like the people that worked on Empire into Raiders and then people that worked on Raiders went into Jedi and, you know, the symbiotic relationship between Indiana Jones and Star Wars. And like we'll get into later in the year, you know, it was without the young Indiana Jones Chronicles and the technology that was pioneered in that show that no one was paying attention to when it was on TV. Without that, there wouldn't have been the prequels. And without the technology of the prequels, there wouldn't even be movies today. We wouldn't be watching anything. <laughs> we, we would have went back to just reading handwritten text on scrolls. That's what it would have came to without the prequels, people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and with the, the recent announcement that uh, what Bethesda and uh, Machine Games, they're, they're making a new Indiana Jones game. And the promise that Indiana Jones 5 still will happen one day. Indy's not going anywhere. It's going to come back in one way or another. And I know it's a good time to kind of look at its unique history and, you know, the Lucasfilm family and yeah, it's direct connections to star Wars and kind of what makes those movies last and what makes them still so amazing. Because I still think Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, we're not, you know, as, as we go on, there's no reason to talk about why Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of the most perfect movies ever made because I feel it is one of the most perfect movies ever made. One of the most influential movies as well, too, like as much as Star Wars was very inspiring and influential to all of these other people. Raiders was kind of the same thing of just a different kind. I mean, so many movies that have been made since Raiders came out are just Raiders. There are other people trying to make Raiders of the Lost Ark with different stuff. And it's it's like Star Wars in that way where it seeped itself into pop culture so deeply that the roots of Raiders now are almost like just part of natural storytelling and just a genre kind of filmmaking. But at the time when Raiders came out in 81 and it's you know callbacks to the old serials that Lucas and Spielberg watched, which we're going to get into, nobody had really seen anything like that. Be in a while, in decades. Right, because similar to Star Wars, it's another mix together of film history that came before it and repackaged in a way that 
a new generation could appreciate it and has kind of become another baseline of what is an action movie that people still draw from to this day. And, and video games and when the game got announced, it, the, the obvious comparisons to like Uncharted and you think of Tomb Raider and the, the whole genres of things that owe so much to that Indiana Jones kind of style. Well, it's it's like the other genre, right? It's like, well, I like movies like Star Wars or I like movies like Raiders. <laughs> it's like there's only two types of movies. I like them both. You know, I like both kinds. I like the Star Wars and the Raiders kind of movies. Yeah. Well, here's one thing I was wondering because much like Star Wars, I don't remember as a kid ever there being a world without Indiana Jones, even though I don't think I saw – Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater. It was just like, I always remember knowing about Indiana Jones. And I remember seeing Temple of Doom in the theater and being super excited before they came out. But do you remember seeing Raiders in the theater or is it another one of those things where it's just kind of like, it's just always been there. A hundred percent where I still, when I watch Raiders, and it's kind of, I, I, I kind of love this. I can still remember the ending with the faces melting at the Harbor Theater in Muskegon, <laughs> Michigan. I love that effect of the, the melting Nazi faces so much, but I remember being a kid and I always had to cover my eyes. And I would go see Raiders, like, because it was re-released all the time, and I feel like it would play at the Harbor Theater in Muskegon for months and months and months. Because, like, the Harbor, what, in Muskegon, how much did it cost, like, in the 80s to go see a movie? Wasn't it, like, a nickel or something to go to a movie at the Harbor? Probably less than a dollar, yeah. Yeah, and it would just play constantly. Like, the, the there's two screens, and, like, one movie would just come and go but they would just keep raiders for like an entire summer or something and so i would just constantly be going to see raiders of the lost ark but yeah i can remember always covering my face because still like i still kind of have a memory of just seeing darkness of like the palms of my hand and just hearing that music and like the screaming <laughs> yeah maybe it's better i don't remember the first time i saw I, I had toys, and I had uh, the I had the storybook, and yeah, I went as Indiana Jones for Halloween, and I can remember uh, my elementary school playground. There was like a like a truck that was like a jungle gym, but it was like shaped like a truck, but the front of it had like a grill on it, and so I would hang on to like the grill and then crawl underneath it. And I remember thinking, like, kind of typical, thinking, like, telling other kids, like, you know, it's like in Where's the Lost Ark? When he goes under, you know, and he hangs on and then he falls out and then he goes out and people are just like, it was my first taste of maybe I'm not on the wavelength of other people, you know? <laughs> other people aren't, aren't paying quite into it the way I am, maybe. Yeah, maybe you're a little more into this than the other kids. It's, you know, it's fine. <laughs> No, yeah, I have very vivid memories of watching Raiders over and over again. Yeah, and I really remember Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. My going to see Last Crusade is a whole other story that we'll get into later in India. But yeah, if you can't tell, Raiders of the Lost Ark holds a special place in our hearts. <laughs> well, it's like, I really like the Indiana Jones movies, but you 
really like this image. We've <laughs> got a lot of stories coming up later in the year for, for you folks. <laughs> Go Center Cinema Westwood in the Theodore Drive in New Okay, so before we get started, we have got to give a huge shout out to J.W. Rinsler's book, The Complete Making of Indiana Jones. It came out, what, right before Crystal Skull came out? So, like, what, 2008? And it's in the same format as his incredible making of Star Wars books. I feel like people don't talk about his making of Indiana Jones as much, which is a shame because it's incredible. And it's got concept art and production photos, and it's just a treasure trove of Indiana Jones information. And I, if you're a Star Wars fan chances are there's going to be things in it that you have never seen or didn't know about. It's just it's just as good as his Star Wars books. Yeah, really the only negative is that he condensed all four movies into one book. And pretty much I think the majority of the book is is dedicated to Raiders, which makes sense. But when you get to the to the other three movies, it's like, it's such a tease because you really, you really want a whole book for all of them. But uh, everything in there, yeah, it's just great. It's a great book. So the story of Indiana Jones, like what really begins, kind of the same way it began for Star Wars, where you know George Lucas convinced Alan Ladd Jr. to let him make his his crazy Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers s kind of space adventure thing, and he's at home doing research and he's rewatching all these uh, serial adventures. You know, he's watching the Flash Gordons again, but he's also watching, you know, things that people don't talk about as much, like uh, Tim Tyre's Luck and Dan Winslow of the Navy and old Zorro serials. He's coming up with this idea of this swashbuckling adventurer going around the world looking for treasure and making a movie that was just a series of these kind of more adventure kind of serials, but set on Earth, not set in his the other crazy story he's thinking up at that time. Well, and this is, I think, if anything, the beginning of the Star Wars indie connection where it is George Lucas's idea of taking these serials that he was such a fan of as a kid, but doing them with a more modern, higher production value basically just doing a better job of them and assuming that, you know, if he was really into the stuff as a kid, that people are still going to be really into that stuff, especially if it's done at a higher level. 
and that the yeah really the dna of star wars and indie is the same type of shows they're just slightly different genres he puts that aside though this 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 swashbuckling adventure kind of thing he puts it aside so he can finish his his space thing because that's what alan ladd jr was paying him to do but so it just kind of sits on the shelf for a little while and yeah as he's kind of writing down scribbling down all these ideas though you know it's famously well known now that he's hanging out at the house mostly by himself while marsha's off like you know editing stuff for martin scorsese and stuff and it's him in the house with his big alaskan malmute indiana and yeah he comes up with the name indiana smith the indiana jones story started before i was working on the screenplay for star wars um when i was thinking about doing a sort of modern fairy tale uh, couched in uh, sort of Saturday matinee serial vernacular. Um, I was thinking about all the great things I can do. And obviously one of the subjects that came up was to do it in outer space and do it sort of like Flash Gordon. And the other idea I had at the same time was really to do it about an archaeologist who goes around finding ancient artifacts that have sort of a supernatural flavor to them. So now if we flash back to January in 1968, there is a student film fest at UCLA and George Lucas is there and they show THX 1138 4EB, his student film. It wins. It's kind of a highlight of the show. I think wasn't Irving Kirshner actually was one of the judges, I think, at that time, right? Right. Yeah. Awarding. Top prize to little George Lucas's bizarre THX one one three eight four EB, and it's at yeah at Royce Hall at UCLA. So you think like uh, Lucas came down to you know well, I think he was already up in San Francisco and came down to to LA to be a part of this uh, student film fest there. Yeah, and Spielberg is there to kind of see what the students are doing. He is a aspiring filmmaker at the time as well. And he's like immediately in awe of the super cool George Lucas. And he goes backstage to try to meet this kid who made this movie. It's funny. Cause there's, there's two versions of the story because this is basically the first time the two of them ever met. And when Spielberg tells it, like he goes and he meets Lucas and they talk and, and they immediately become best friends. And if you hear Lucas's version, it's like he, he remembers being aware of this guy Spielberg who comes up and shakes his hand and they like say hello. And, and then that's it, but it all works out and Spielberg is inspired. He goes off and makes his own student film Amblin, which opens a lot of doors for him. He gets a job at Universal. He starts directing TV shows and kind of, in a way, makes it and becomes part of the the studio system, which is really the opposite of what George Lucas wants to do. And it's kind of, it's just fascinating how the beginning of their friendship starts at the beginning of their careers and how their careers really are the opposite of each other, but they end up, you know, becoming lifelong best friends. Yeah, I love it too. Like, I think it's in in Rinsler's book that there's like a quote, something from Spielberg, where when he's backstage at that UCLA Film Festival, he's just like observing 
super cool Francis Coppola and George Lucas. And you look at like what both of them looked like in 68 and they had beards and they were from San Francisco and they were probably dressed really cool and they had glasses, you know, and they were outside the system. And you have someone like Spielberg who, you know, the, the, the legend that he was sneaking into Universal Studios, like jumping off the tram and <laughs> hanging around the filming of Hitchcock movies. And he, you know, he wanted that life of making studio movies. And, you know, he was what, 21 years old, 20 years old or something. And he was directing Joan Crawford and, you know, episodes of Night Gallery for Rod Serling and stuff. And yeah, and then you had Coppola and Lucas who were just like, we don't want anything to do with that. We want to make movies in a barn and um, 100% control every aspect of everything we do. Yeah, and if you would have, you know, if you tell someone, you describe these two people, it's like, are these two, do you think these two people are going to A, be friends at all and B, literally be best, the bestest of best friends for their entire lives and manage to make a bunch of movies together and still be the best of friends their whole lives. There were so many chances for them to completely hate each other. Well, and for these two people to end up being a couple of the most influential filmmakers of the decade too. Yeah. So what's the story that like uh, Lucas is at a party at Coppola's house and duel Spielberg's amazing movie duel is on TV and what Lucas doesn't even ha- like at a commercial break during Duel, he runs downstairs and tells everyone at the party, like, "Hey, you've got to come up and watch this incredible movie that that guy Steve Spielberg made." And no, and then no one comes up, and Lucas just watches it by himself. So it's yeah, it's so cool that they're both kind of in awe of each other. They know of each other, but they haven't come together yet. Yeah, they're kind of they are in these this parallel point in their lives where they're both just getting started but they're yeah they're constantly aware of each other i want to say doesn't lucas like forgets about it and he kind of he starts he catches it late but then he's like he was just going to go watch like 10 minutes of it and then he like got immediately sucked into it i don't blame him in duel duel's where it's at yeah so they finally really kind of sit down and meet each other when what lucas is casting american graffiti and Spielberg is getting ready to shoot uh, his first feature film, Sugarland Express, which was, has a script by former Lucas classmates Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood. And I, I think it's around this time where I I want to say that they're introduced to each other by Robbins and Barwood, like, oh, you know, you two should know each other, and they really hit it off. And yeah, they have a lot in common of what they're into and just their extreme passionate love for film. Yeah. Cause isn't this when Lucas is just hanging out at their house at the end of the day when they're working with Spielberg and they're just like eating dinner and talking every night. When you think too, they're both kind of weirdos like, and they balance each other out because even in like you watch old interviews with Spielberg in the seventies, he was like, talking like like a cartoon and like talking really fast and you know george lucas has always just been george lucas though (laughs) 
that's the beautiful thing about that guy. Like you watch him in 2021 or you watch him in 1978. He's still young Spielberg was just this overflowing ball of energy. And he still kind of is like, he still gets really excited about stuff and talks really fast and gets really animated. But they, they have, they they have a lot in common, the two of them. They're both insanely creative weirdos like when it comes down to it. Well, and if you want to know more about just their overall friendship and connection over the years, we did a whole episode on that back in episode 131. Yeah. The, the Spielberg connection where it, Spielberg's influence on Star Wars continued on it through the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy and how even into the, the sequel trilogy and yeah this is one of our battle droids actually oh that's look at this this is cool. this is the new stormtrooper oh this man. is our new stormtrooper but in a way he's the old model replaced by star wars being the new stormtrooper yeah because what you don't realize is that these guys really are not very efficient they uh these things you know jedi cut them down like they're butter and they really are pretty useless. Yeah, pretty useless. Really, the old dangle weed here. Yeah. So, uh, no, that's. Oh, sorry. You know these dro- droids. I can't get the physiology right. There we go. Oh. And so, what happens in the end is they all join forces and everything, and the Goongas battle the droids in this huge kind of war and peace battle. Uh-huh. Like, literally war and peace. Right. It's huge. You know, ten thousand. Troops on both side. sides coming at each other. Coming at each other. That's great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. So, continuing into the future, Spielberg is now making Jaws, and Lucas is still writing Star Wars, but he's also just can't stop thinking about this Indiana Smith idea. So Lucas is talking to his friend Philip Kaufman about it um, as he's looking for a new project to start on and he needs some work. So as they're talking, Kaufman tells him a story he heard from his dentist, of all people, about the power of the lost Ark of the Covenant. Apparently that blows Lucas's mind. He thinks that's great and it's going to be the perfect MacGuffin for his other project that's called Raiders. Well, no. What was it called before? I don't think it even had a title because, yeah, like, I think according to Rinsler's book, then they would go on what long walks. And then Lucas is like, and the movie's going to be called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, comes up with it right at that moment. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because that is that is a very, uh, it seems to be how things worked in those days. It was like all of a sudden, you know, he had the title before he had the story. But it's funny how, you know, it's just this little side story in the story of Raiders, but just, you know, if he didn't have this conversation with Phil Kaufman, he might never have thought about the Ark of the Covenant. And if you don't have the Ark of the Covenant, you don't have Raiders of the Lost Ark and maybe none of this ever happens. But before anything more can happen with this partnership, Kaufman leaves to go do the outlaw Josie Wales and Star Wars is getting closer and closer to being made. So now for the second time, Indiana Jones gets put back on the back burner. And like around this time too, yes, Spielberg is, is making jaws and uh, Lucas visits the set of jaws. There was a story where Lucas climbed into uh, 
the the Bruce shark, the animatronic shark, to see how it see all the gears inside, which is just beautiful. And um, and you know, there's the famous story where Spielberg was the only one after Lucas had his disastrous screening of Star Wars for like De Palma and everybody, and Spielberg was the only one who was like, I thought it was great. That's gonna make a billion dollars, George. And George Lucas is all sad. But then that's why Lucas goes to hang out on the Close Encounters set after he's done with his UK shoot for Star Wars. Like he, when he's down, he goes and hangs out with his buddy Spielberg. You know, he, it's if anything, it's like he knows he has this one person that gets him, and he can just hang out and be himself, which is kind of beautiful. I mean, they're buddies. They're you know, <laughs> we had such a wonderful kind of a, of an incubator in the early 70s late 60s early 70s i really began directing in 69 on television when i was 21 but and i met all these people around that period of time i met george lucas in 1967 when we were both in college i was in long beach state he was at usc and i met a lot of the fellows in, in college and then in professional life and it was not a click not a brat pack nothing that people claim we were we just a bunch of filmmakers that weren't afraid to show our rough cuts to each other, and we weren't afraid of that kind of criticism. We weren't afraid of George Lucas or Brian De Palma. I never forget the day Brian De Palma and I saw the rough cut of Star Wars, and it was only about six of us in the room, and it was the very first time George had ever showed the picture to anybody, and chose six of us to show it to. Well, Brian went off the deep end. Wes makes no sense, nonsense. What's this all about? And 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 through all of the contention of that wild evening, where Brian liked the movie, but thought it was a, sort of mixed up. It wasn't really mixed up, it just didn't have 89% of the special effects in them. Who could possibly make heads or tails meet on, a, on, on Star Wars without all those, you know, 500 effect shots? But um, Brian, Brian's contention did lead to George inventing the now very famous forward, like the old serials that crawled up the screen, you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now that came out of that rough cut screening sort of selfless thinking where the ego is not in, you know you know leading you around by your nostrils but you're open to pain and to embarrassment and to ridicule with peers that know what it's like to make a movie who have made movies so you can respect their word their critique so to speak yeah it's may 27th 1977 on the, what the beach of hawaii just two days after the release of Star Wars and what Spielberg has finished shooting Close Encounters, during dinner one night, George Lucas is notified that Star Wars has sold out all of its shows and it'll be released in more theaters. I, yeah, again, in Rensler's book, there's a thing that like suddenly Lucas's whole demeanor completely flipped. <laughs> Where you get to think originally it was going to Hawaii just to kind of get away from it. Like, I don't even want to hear about what happens. It's, it's There's so many things I could have done different to do backs. Suddenly it's like, no, George, it's selling out nonstop. And I, this is a great story where they're sitting there at dinner and Lucas says to Spielberg, like, I think you should direct Raiders of the Lost Ark. You should direct all my Raiders movies. And Spielberg is like, what's Raiders of the Lost Ark? What what are Raiders movies? And then yeah, it's a famous story. They've told it a million times that like yeah, the next morning they're on the beach making sandcastles. Which also I love that 
George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were making sandcastles on a beach in Hawaii. Was did Lucas? I, I imagine he had like a flannel shirt on, sitting in the sand. So, like really tight jean shorts and a flannel shirt. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. Well, and the fact that that's now, or at least, I mean, now they probably don't do it, but for years it was a tradition where they would go after their movies and, and build sandcastles. And what is it like if the if the tide comes in and the castle gets washed away, then the movie's not going to be a hit. But if the castle stands up to the tide, then they, then it's going to be a hit. I want to make every decision that way. <laughs> like, I wish I lived on a beach. Should I do it? You know, I'm going to, the sandcastle test. If it worked for raiders, it'll work for anything. Yeah, the next morning, before well, before the whole sandcastle thing, Lucas is told that all the nine thirty a.m. shows of like because Star Wars was only in like twenty eight theaters for its initial opening or something because nobody had any faith in this movie whatsoever, and the nine thirty shows for all the theaters that were in were were sold out, and Twentieth Century Fox was like, okay, next weekend we're going to release it in. 200 theaters and we're going to get this thing bigger and bigger and bigger. And this, this is a hit. And, you know, Spielberg is the, you've, everyone's heard a million times is expressing to George, like that he wants to make a bond movie, but his kind of thing is saying that he wants to do a bond movie that isn't so dependent on gadgets and stuff. Cause we were coming into like the Roger Moore, the prime Roger Moore era kind of thing. And he wanted to say, he wanted to do it more like Dr. No, and Lucas is like, that's what I was telling you about with the, the Raiders movies. And he just maps out everything he's got for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And what Spielberg is like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And they shake hands. Lucas is like, I'm retired. I don't want to do it. And Spielberg's like, I'll do it. It's yours. Run with it. Go. That's the thing, too, that, you know, after Star Wars, how he hired uh, Lee Brackett to do The Empire Strikes Back and... Then for for Rears of the Lost Ark, they they bring in an outside writer then too, right? Yeah, because at that point, as much as the character and really a lot of the story of Raiders is in Lucas's head and his notes, he doesn't want to write a script. So in 78, they hire screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan based on his script for the movie Continental Divide that Spielberg I think got the rights to. It's it's an interesting thing because Continental Divide was eventually made as, as a John Belushi movie, and it's it's a romantic comedy. You would never think that like, oh, this guy that wrote this romantic comedy, he should be the person we hire to write our 1930s, 40s action adventure supernatural special effects. The you know <laughs> our George Lucas's foul up to. Star Wars kind of thing. But as we're going to get into is with the development of Rares of Lost Ark, it makes perfect sense because what Kasdan could add was a feel for characters and humanity and the way like real people talked because, you know, we, we love Star Wars like a lot, like in a freaky, insane way. But George, some of George Lucas's dialogue isn't like the way real people talk. We all know that. (laughs) Yes. Well, and and we'll get into it more, too, that one of the really core ideas with Indiana Jones, as outlandish as the movie gets, is there was this idea of it being you know realistic in quotes. Like, it's not completely fantastical, and it's about this 
character and they, yeah, they needed someone to make this kind of outrageous character, a real person. And Spielberg and Lucas can go for days coming up with just scenarios and outrageous action and ridiculous characters. But the idea of taking all of this really over the top stuff and packaging it in a way that makes sense and, you know, the average person can can watch it and understand is is an important part of the uh, the recipe for Indiana Jones and Raiders in particular. And so things are moving quickly now. They have a screenwriter and they they find a producer. Yeah, they hire Frank Marshall. He had done uh, the Warriors in the past. And he was young. I mean, he was just getting started. And in the book, he's kind of like, he goes for a meeting, what with Lucas and Spielberg. And afterwards, he's just like, oh my God, I can't believe him. <laughs> right. Because they hired Frank Marshall and Kasdan. Was it this? Were they the two that was like the same day where, like, as one was leaving the office, the other one was coming in? Because didn't they meet in the parking lot or something? It's like all of that. And we're going to get into it more and more as this episode goes on. But. You just you see that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, one of the things they have in common is when the two of them are ready to do something, they're ready to do it. And they're going to get stuff done. Right, because one of the reasons they were moving so fast, but also making sure they had a producer on board was just they knew, I mean, they had made enough movies at that point to know you need someone organizing everything and they both had just come off of movies that were went long were over budget were stressful and they're smart guys and wanted to make sure that they could get this movie one made and then two you know done quickly and and cheaply like as much as i think people think of both of those guys as being like the big hollywood extravaganza kind of directors uh, especially Lucas, there was always this idea of some pride in like doing more with less and, you know, which carries over into, you know, as crazy as the prequels were like part of his goal was like, how extravagant can he be and still be affordable? And they were thinking about that even back with Raiders. Like they wanted to, it was a, supposed to be a B movie and, and they wanted to shoot it fast and cheap. And as we get into the story conference, like even in the the story conference discussions, like, they're talking about how they're going to make this movie fast and cheap. You think about it now, and it's like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg teaming up for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're like, oh, it's a no-brainer. This is going to be a huge hit. But George Lucas had Star Wars. I mean, there was American Graffiti in there, but still Star Wars was a phenomenon, and Empire was still years away. And, you know, there was a period of time, too, where Nobody even knew if Empire was going to make it. And people were predicting that Empire was going to be a flop. And this whole thing was a fluke. And Spielberg had done Jaws and Close Encounters. Yeah, and they were both movies that went over schedule and over budget. And he was so young. I mean, he was like 22, 23 years old or something when he did all this. And studios were kind of scared. Because like we said in the very beginning of the episode, there's never been a movie quite like this. What's the audience for this movie? You guys say you're going to do it fast and cheap and keep the budget down, but that's what you said about all those other movies you guys made, and that didn't happen. So why should we believe you on this? 
it's a classic now, but it, at the time, if you look at it from that perspective, you can kind of understand that it was a bold kind of thing to kind of take on for a studio or a producer for anybody. And even Frank Marshall, you have a producer with not a ton of experience. But those guys were ready to make this movie and they wanted to make this movie and they were moving forward, assuming that George could find somebody to fund this movie. So what is it? It's a January 23rd through the 27th of 1978. It's Lawrence Kasdan. It's George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, all in the home of Jane Bay, who was George Lucas's assistant and they are just sitting down at a table and they're hashing out the nuts and bolts of what Raiders of the Lost Ark is going to be. And this story conference, which is kind of infamous out there, it's absolutely fascinating. It's chronicled online where someone has like the audio tapes. In Rinsler's book, he just has like two or three pages of it. But someone transcribed the entire thing, and it's intense. It's 90 pages long. It, it really is like, it's almost like, it's like the sacred Jedi text of Indiana Jones, but it's also kind of, it's a really interesting insight into the mind of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And I can get why maybe it's not publicized enough for people to read it because it it is very long and and just kind of rambles on in parts and also it's very 1978 with the uh, some of the things they talk about aren't quite as uh they're a little uh, I'm trying to think of the, a nice way to put it there's some very cringe-worthy parts yeah maybe that's that's a, yeah a good way to put it there's some things ways of describing characters and relationships and things you probably wouldn't talk about in 2020 but most of it yeah it's just we say this all the time but it it is one of the most fascinating things just seeing these two guys these best friends who are just goofy weird movie guys talking through really things that become all four indiana jones movies over you know these four days in 1978 like it's it's relentless with just how much stuff they're they're coming up with. It, they are literally overflowing with ideas, both of them. And you know, we'll put the link in the show notes uh, to to a website that has the whole thing uh, transcribed. You, you can read it for yourself. But you, yeah, you've just got these two extremely creative people who, even in in reading this, are creative though in different ways because. It's like you said, it's it's like going into the minds of Lucas and Spielberg because when Lucas talks, his speech usually fills up an entire page and he will be going on and on and on about uh, the, the history behind things, whether it's the Ark or the Spear of Destiny or the historical things behind the ideas they have. And then Spielberg will cut in and be like, there should be a part where spikes come out of a wall. <laughs> well, especially because it's very much a, a window into maybe more private George Lucas. Because in public, George Lucas is kind of a quiet guy and he does interviews and stuff. But he kind of keeps things brief. And here, like you said, he, there's there will be a whole page that is just George Lucas 
kind of going through an idea and it's not the way you usually see him in, in other, in other places. And this is like, you know, in a room with his best friend and a guy like this is like the real George Lucas just going crazy. It reminds me of when Lucas is able to cut loose. It's like you get it in the, the, the mythology of Star Wars, the the interview he did with uh, Bill Moyers before Phantom Menace came out, or some of the stuff on YouTube when he did speeches at colleges for a while, and he'll talk for 20 minutes about <laughs> love and just deep philosophical ideas, and then he'll just, and, and that's it, and okay, bye-bye, and I'm out. And... <laughs> You know that that's part of him, but you know it's. I feel like so often in interviews, they're like, "What do you think about Han Solo?" You know. <laughs> well, one thing I that that kind of I was thinking of reading this that I hadn't really thought about much before too is just the idea. You know, there's a lot about how the character of Luke is kind of based on George Lucas himself, of you know, being in a small town and wanting to you know drive fast cars and, and have a life of adventure and, and get away from, you know, where he, he feels trapped as a, as a young person, that sort of thing where I never really thought about how much Indiana Jones is almost like who George Lucas wants to be or his, his fantasy version of himself. And you kind of see that a little bit at the beginning when he's talking about the character, because, you know, you think about he went to college for anthropology. He always talks about he's interested in in anthropology and and archaeology. So it's Indiana Jones. But, you know, even though Indiana Jones is smart, he's also like this badass world traveling adventurer kind of thing. So it's 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 stuff I didn't really think about at the time. But now, you know, now that I see it, it's like. It's definitely there. And because you read kind of him describing the character and, and, and early on, it is almost like too much. Like he's he's really smart. He's a professor, but he's also like James Bond and, and the ladies love him. And he's like a super fighter and maybe he knows Kung Fu and he's got. He's got a full whip. They spend like a half hour about the whole idea of if Indiana Jones should know Kung Fu or not. And is that going too far? But I think, you know, like James Bond, he started as this idea of, you know, it's the man every man wants to be. But it's the man every man wants to be if that man is George Lucas, which is kind of the charm of Indy in the end, that it is like he ends up becoming more and more, I think, the real Lucas where he's like, he's not as charming. He's still a little goofy and he's still a little clumsy and he's just more of just like a regular guy that gets to do a little bit of this exciting stuff. Something I never thought about too, when I was going through the, this, these story conference notes, they, they're talking about the, the bullwhip and they're coming up with the whole idea of the bullwhip and they're, they're just laying out the rules of what Indiana Jones is and when he should use the bullwhip and when he shouldn't. Lucas makes a really interesting comment that it should only come out in special circumstances and it should be kept on like his side, like, like a samurai using a sword. And that just Im- immediately made me think of like lightsabers that like Indy's whip is almost like a Jedi with a lightsaber comes out when you need it and it's like when indy doesn't have his whip it's like i'm kind of lost without this thing and it's 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 his special tool 
And I love too, uh, several times during the story meetings too, Spielberg, like they're, they're going over all these ideas and these back and forth and then this happens and then that happens. And Spielberg says a couple times that he's like, so basically what we're making is a ride at Disneyland. Which you think of something like like Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland or the whole kind of idea of like you go in one room and there's a little story happening. And then you go around a corner and there's another little story happening. And, you know, all these the great rides at Disneyland were these little mini abstract stories <laughs> that you were getting in little bits and pieces and fast pace and and then, you know, the, the ironic thing that eventually Indiana Jones did become a ride at Disneyland. <laughs> well, it's kind of the whole thing of where the movie was so influential of like this was the, the first movie that, you know, the idea of a movie as a thrill ride or a, you know, you go in the theater and you feel like you were on a ride. It's not like, you know, you were watching a drama and you feel like you understand a relationship better or something. You literally feel like you went to Disneyland and in your, you know, your cover was sweat when you came out of the theater and just that idea that movies could be, you know, like a Disneyland ride. When even at one point too, and uh, when they were digging for the Ark, there was originally going to be like a, a mine car race, which of course then later showed up in Temple of Doom, which literally is a roller coaster ride in the movie. Yeah. But I think before we get too far on it, back with the with the indie stuff or the you know who is Indiana Jones stuff, I love some of the stuff that Lucas is just rambling on about because I like when he's talking about uh, just trying to describe him to Kasdan of you know and he says in archaeology circles he knows everybody he's sort of like a private detective grave robber a bounty hunter he's sort of an archaeological exorcist which he kind of is but it's just so. I don't know. It's just such a goofy George Lucas way to describe it. And then later on where he really wants him to be a doctor because he just thinks it would be uh, funny that if people call him doctor and then uh, Spielberg you know, chimes in, I like that, the doctor with the bullwhip. That's all the magic of Indiana Jones right there. Yeah. When you read through this, like it all kind of makes sense because, you know, like we said, Spielberg is the one throwing out like, there should be darts falling out of the, coming out of the walls, and then maybe spiders come out and crawl all over everybody. And Lucas is bringing in all this like deep mythology and history. You know, Lucas is really—you can just see it happening where he's just really sitting there thinking deep, and like Spielberg is like drinking Coca Colas and getting all excited. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's it's it, and you know maybe that to me is is part of the magic of the indie movies too because. Everyone thinks George Lucas is just this really goofy guy. And then you watch, you know, the prequels and there's all this just super goofy stuff. But, you know, reading some of this, you realize that Spielberg might be even goofier, <laughs> you know, because when they're talking about the the bullwhip stuff and, you know, George is talking about all the like cool things you can do with it. Now it's a samurai sword. And then Spielberg's like, you can knock somebody's belt off and the guy's pants fall down. <laughs> Or he talks about, you know, he really wants a scene where Indy grabs a can of beer with it. Indy 5 can still happen. <laughs> well, one Lucas quote in this that I I was really drawn to where he says it can be um, – because it's kind of like when they're talking about that kind of stuff, like the, the, the beer can and stuff, where Lucas says it can be amusing, but it also has to be realistic. And he, he kind of goes on with that not to go overboard – with explaining everything that they do either. And it's that same kind of 
it can be amusing, but it has to be realistic. Kind of thinking that, you know, makes Star Wars work still to this day. That, you know, you it's like the the way we've talked about over and over again. It's like why you want to go to Galaxy's Edge. It like it's gotta feel like a world that you want to be in. It can't be too far out there. Yeah, it's somehow the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen and also completely believable at the same time. In the world of the movie that you're watching, it seems completely plausible. Even though if you saw it next to you in the real world, you wouldn't accept it. And that is kind of the magic of these movies, of just putting you in a mindset where this stuff can happen and it totally seems like, yeah, of course this is happening. Reading through this too, it becomes very clear the way these two people are are similar and the way they're different where you really get the sense that George Lucas thinks in big ideas big concepts overreaching themes where Spielberg delights in the little stuff the little details yeah i mean and he's always thinking about you know what's the camera going to be doing how's this going to look where Lucas is thinking about what is going to happen and why is it going to happen? And there is just this perfect blend of the way they think and the way they work with Spielberg being the one directing it and Lucas being the one worrying about the big picture. It it reminds me of what in there, there's the part where they're talking about the whole, the bad dates thing with the, with the monkey eats the poison date and dies. And was it Spielberg is just delighting in the idea of like, we could see like the monkey, the monkey's hand coming up and eating the date and stuff. Like he's thinking yeah, the shots and the scenes and little gags he can put in there. It just speaks to the, the unique marriage of these two extremely weird creative people and why, you know, peanut butter and chocolate why they just work really well together. Well, and I think I mentioned a little bit of this earlier too. It's neat going through this, you know, in between, you know, talking about dying monkeys and and all this other nonsense. They'll, you know, start talking about, you know, Lucas is like, how are we going to make this movie cheap? You know, how are we going to only spend a couple million dollars? And Lucas saying, you know, we want to spend all our money on stunts, spend it all on guys falling off of horses instead of crowd scenes. And Lucas talks a lot about how they need to film a lot of this movie with second unit, which, you know, when they finally get around to filming the movie, they, they did do it that way where they had, you know, the second unit going around and, and filming all the stuff that didn't have the main actor actors and filming the stunts and all this stuff so that they could get this movie done quickly and cheaply. And, you know, it's just, you don't always get, insight into the filmmaking process at this early stage like you do reading the story conference and the process of two people who just made two of the biggest movies of all time when you when you read through this one person who's being kind of quiet in this is the you know the other person in the room Lawrence Kasdan which his role in all this is just absolutely fascinating because he's the one taking notes and having to eventually turn these what four days of marathon sessions of these two crazy people talking into an actual screenplay for a movie, which just that in itself, like even if the script he wrote was 
terrible. Just the process of doing that isn't, I can't imagine is easy because, you know, it's 90 pages of ideas. It's like the fact that, you know, Kasdan had written Continental Divide and they didn't hire him to write ideas of spikes coming out of walls and giant boulders chasing after people and monkeys eating poisonous dates. They hired him to do the people stuff, do the real people stuff. And that's kind of comes into the, you know, the, the third most important person in the Raiders formula, which is Lawrence Kasdan of what he gave to the movie in terms of dialogue. Well, and just kind of a flow and a, and just something to tie all of these action ideas together. There's not a lot of it, but there's enough to where jumping from, you know, South America to the East Coast to the Middle East. On paper, if you list out what happens in Raiders, it's just a million things happening at a million miles an hour. And he was able to make that feel like a story and a movie and not just a bunch of scenes that you jump from. Well, and the heart and soul of the movie, Indian Marion, and just Marion Ravenwood as a character in general. You, you can owe a lot of that to Lawrence Kasdan. What would that movie be without Marion? Because Raiders is interesting where, you know, there's that, that, that goofy thing where people are just like, was it Indiana Jones doesn't even need to be in the movie. The whole movie could go on without Indiana Jones even being, you know, but Raiders isn't the movie where Indiana Jones has a character arc. Excuse the bad pun. You know, is is Indy different in the beginning of the movie than he is at the end of the movie? It's like Indy's kind of story gets more in gear in the third and fourth Indy movies, in my opinion. But it's Marion who really shines in Rares of the Lost Ark. I mean, it's Karen Allen's amazing performance, but also it's it's Kasdan's script he wrote. And Marion is just such a wonderful, wonderful character. Well, and it it makes sense that Raiders is the way it is because it is, you know, at the beginning here, more of the James Bond idea of he's just this guy that comes in and does his thing. And, you know, you don't complain about James Bond movies because James Bond didn't have a, an arc over the course of the movie. Like that happens every once in a while. And it's, it's a treat when it does, but a lot of times it's just like, I just want to see James Bond do James Bond stuff. That was the movie they were trying to make. And I want to say they even kind of are aware even in the story conference of a lot of the stuff that happens that it's going to happen, whether Indy's there or not. And it's just, he's more like, you know, he's doing what he can, but they, they're they're They know that that's kind of how this story is, that it's not like he's really, you know, he doesn't save the end. The arc is the hero at the end and it, it saves the world, right? You know, Indy's just along for the ride and that's adds to his character. That he's not really this guy out saving the world. He's just doing his thing. And yeah, he has he's on an adventure. And his relationship and interaction with Marion really, yeah, is the heart of the whole movie. In the words that are written and in the performances that Harrison Ford and Karen Allen gave, they're charming. They're fascinating. And Raiders is a movie much like Star Wars that is infinitely watchable. You can watch that movie a thousand times and like, I'm just, 
just having a good time watching my favorite thing. I know what happens, but I just love these characters. And that's, again, what it's got to come down to. You've just got to love these characters. And that's what the Lawrence Kasdan factor added to all of this. Because you can have stuff like, you know, that's with Star Wars and Indiana Jones. They're movies that are overflowing with things and ideas and concepts and crazy, crazy bits. And without human characters for us to relate to through all these stories, then they're just stuff. And then we would just get lost in the stuff and nobody would care. You wouldn't cry when Grogu is taken away from the Mandalorian if you didn't care, somehow care about this person in a, in a, in a Beskar helmet, <laughs> which is insane, but you know, with a puppet. But that's the beauty of all of this stuff, that in the end, you have to care about the characters. And then what? Yeah, Kasdan hands in his draft. Lucas doesn't even read it just knows it's going to be amazing and lucas immediately is like you've got to get to work on the on the sequel to star wars which still blows my mind that like we've been talking about raiders of the lost ark for so long here and kasdan hasn't even written empire strikes back yet and empire came out before raiders steven spielberg about continental right and when i met him for the first time he said um you know, George Lucas and I, I mean, I'm two weeks out of advertising, uh, are going to make an adventure movie. And um, I showed him Continental Divide, and we're interested in you writing it. Are you interested? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and we went to see George, and um, it was a very odd meeting. Frank Marshall was in that meeting. And I had not met until that day. He had never met George. And um, we're into it, he says, and George says, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to do this story, and the, the guy's named after my dog, Indiana, and he has a whip and uh, a hat, and um, he's chasing the Lost Ark of the Covenant. And so I went off for six months and wrote that. And um, when I went to hand it in, he took it, he threw it on the desk, and he said, um, let's go out to lunch. And I said, okay, we well, sit down. And he says, uh, I'm in big trouble with the second Star Wars. We've got all these people working in England, and I don't have a script. He said, I'm really in a hole here. Will you write uh, this movie? And I said, um, don't you want to read Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to read it tonight. And if I don't like it, I'm going to call you up tomorrow take back this offer. <laughs> and what came out of Larry Kasdan's typewriter was even a better version of the movie that we pitched out in those three or four days of story meetings that I had with George and Larry Kasdan. But I think that's where it was born and that's where it will always remain, at least in my memory, that that film came to life, not so much even on the sound stages or on location, but the film came to life in the story writing process. And we all pretty much stuck to the script that we were given. Indiana Jones. Yeah, and then after that, they hire 
uh, comic artist Jim Steranko to do some concept art to kind of figure out the look. And that's kind of where we get the first art with the, the iconic leather jacket and hat and the, uh, the World War I pistol with the little button snap cover and all that sort of stuff and the bull whip. And after that, I mean, they're kind of, it's similar to before. I mean, they are moving fast and they're hiring more concept people, Ron Cobb, Joe Johnson over from ILM and more of the star Wars crew comes over. They hire Norman Reynolds to do production design and Robert Watts as associate producer and a production manager. They hire this, little nobody called Kathleen Kennedy that we've never heard of. And she's a uh, Spielberg's assistant on the movie because uh, she was working with uh, John Milius on 1941. I think she's going to go on to big things. I, I, I like, uh, I like what this, uh, this young Kathy Kennedy has going on here. Yeah. I think she might be going places, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, again, this is the whole original Star Wars ingredients are all kind of here mixed in a slightly different form. And the future of Star Wars now is starting with Indiana Jones, with Kathleen Kennedy, the idea of a movie that's a Disneyland ride. It's like the past and future of Star Wars are all kind of intertwined with Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. And so then what Raiders of the Lost Ark is finally released on June 12th, 1981. It is not a flop. It is not a disappointment. You know, you just have everyone, I feel like, at the height of their creative strength. I mean, John Williams' score is absolutely perfect. And much like he did with Star Wars and Jaws, he elevates the material to a whole nother level. And editor Michael Kahn, who... Like works on, I think he's worked on every Spielberg movie except like maybe two or something. Just absolutely nails it with Rare as the Lost Ark. Douglas Solcom, as a director of photography, who just worked with Spielberg a little bit on some pickup shots for Close Encounters, just giving Raiders of the Lost Ark such a glamorous, cinematic, old fashioned kind of Hollywood look. I love what's the stories on, uh, on the set where uh, Solcom would spend what five minutes lighting Harrison Ford, but he would spend a half an hour getting the lighting absolutely perfect on Karen Allen. That's just how good Harrison Ford looks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm biased. I'm prejudiced. It's a perfect movie. You, you know, like this, like when I read the thing that like India Jones doesn't need to be in it. And just like, bzz, bzz. I don't want to hear that because it's, it's note for note perfect. It, it's just, it works. It still works. It's, it, in my opinion, it's a masterpiece. Movies and stories aren't about it making sense. Like, and not even that it doesn't make sense. It's like, so what if the story would have happened, whether Indiana Jones was there or not? You're not watching the movie because it's a puzzle that needs to be solved, right? You're watching the movie because... You're enjoying what you're seeing and you're feeling something and you like these characters and you're absorbed with the action. And it's just it, the movie moves fast. It's action packed. It has a lot of spectacle, but it grounds that spectacle with the characters. And it, yeah, it, it's a template for kind of the future of movies of the idea of 
taking a roller coaster and putting some characters that you care about on the roller coaster and realizing that that's something that people really can enjoy. And, you know, there's been, I don't even know, thousands of movies made with that template in the, in the years since. And, you know, you go see a movie in the summer and eat some popcorn and just have a good time. And that's what Raiders gifted to the world. Much like Star Wars, it's like we, like we've said over and over again, like it's, it's nothing without characters that we care about. The fact that the movie works so well and isn't just, you know, one of the, like you, like you said, like one of the, you know, like a summer blockbuster movie where you forget about it two days after you saw it, you know, just like Star Wars, it's because you care about these people in these outlandish, ridiculous adventures that you're watching. And it's, it's, it's a testament to the friendship and collaboration of two weirdos, two total weirdos that I'm so happy that they're weirdos. I'm so happy that they came together. And what there, there's a story in, in Rinsler's book that I think sums up their, their working relationship. Where in late May 1981, just about a month before Raiders of the Lost Ark hit theaters, they're watching a cut of the movie, and Stephen is showing it to Lucas. And you know, it's the famous scene where Indiana Jones takes out his gun and shoots the Cairo swordsman. You know, one of the most classic, iconic shots. It's in like every whenever people show clips of Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Oscars or something. It's always Indy in the boulder and that part. And the lights come on afterwards, and he says it's very quiet for a minute. And George's comment is something like, "Very good, it works." Well, what happened to the scene where Harrison fights <laughs> fights the swordsman? And Stephen says, I thought it worked better. This is funnier. George says, well, I don't know. So Stephen goes back to Hollywood and leaves his editor, Michael Kahn, for George to do his version. Two weeks later, Stephen comes back and sees, sees George's version. We look at the film in this version that has the full fight. Lights come back up and Stephen says, boy, you really tightened up the film. I like it, George, but I think it works better with Harrison shooting him. And George says, well, we'll test it with an audience. And they ran Raiders. They ran it with the Spielberg version of Harrison shooting him. And the, uh, supposedly the audience goes crazy, clapping and laughing. Says it with the biggest laugh of the movie. And George says, well, I guess that works. You don't hear that a lot in the making of the Star Wars movie. Well, and the best part of the story is at that point, George doesn't even want to show his version. He doesn't need to show his version because he knows at that point that Stephen was right. And he's able to say, you know what? You had the better idea. Let's go with your idea. He doesn't even need to test his. And and that is really the magic of their friendship that they're both these super, I mean, the biggest names in Hollywood and they trust each other to the point of they, they don't have egos with their, each other. They are, they're true friends. And that, is kind of the magic of this. And, and like you were saying before, where like, you know, these action type movies don't work if you don't care about the characters. And it's kind of the idea too, that, you know, everybody wants to make Raiders, but not everybody can. And if you've watched most movies in you know the last 40 years, not everybody can, can find that balance that, that these two guys can find and make 
something so action-packed and iconic yet still have heart and characters that you can still watch this movie 40 years later and, and, and love it just as much as the first time. I can't go back and look at a lot of my movies without either punching holes in them or just kind of like flinching and going, Ooh, I could have done that better. I have probably a handful of films that I've directed that I could watch objectively as if I didn't have anything to do with the movie. And Raiders is one of those films that I can look at with my kids and divorce myself from all my knowledge and forget how it was made and watch it from the point of view of an audience. And that's what's fun about that picture. That was a gift that Raiders gave back to me was it let me watch it objectively 20, 25 years later. It was one of those rare occasions where everything, the script came out better than we expected, the movie came out better than we expected, everything sort of just came together and was brilliant. Indy, over here. Indiana Jones at your service, Toad. Ah! <laughs> Indiana Jones and other action figures new from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection, each sold separately. Watch him, Cairo, swordsman. Yeah! Watch my swing. Yikes. All downhill from here, swordsman. You'll be sorry, Jones. Tricky again, Toad. Indiana Jones, Toad, and Cairo Swordsman action figures, each sold separately from Raiders of the Lost Ark Collection, new from Kenner. You lost today. podcast reviews if you listen on some sort of apple something or other go over there write us a little review we love reading them we love reading them on the show which we're gonna get to if not next week the week after we got a bunch we're gonna get through and we we want to read yours that you write right after you get done listening to this and don't forget to check out our website blastpointspodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and if you're on Facebook, make sure you're a member of the Blast Points Chill Group. If you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where it's either coming out really soon or it's already out. We got a Q&A about uh, Mandalorian Season 2 with uh, P- Patreon-submitted questions about what, what the heck happened in that. I still don't even know. We're, we're trying to figure it out. And there's yeah, all of our uh, back episodes of reviews of uh, Mandalorian episodes and Clone Wars episodes and commentaries and all kinds of fun stuff. So, yeah, if you want to check that out, head over to our Patreon and sign up. Yeah, and it's not just going to be Indie Year on the uh, regular show. There's going to be some uh, Indie Year surprises on the Patreon as well. Something to look forward to. But that about wraps up episode 251, our first entry in Indie Year. Yeah, like we said, 
we've got uh, a lot of really fun stuff planned for uh, the last episode of every month coming all through the year. We've got uh, some some special guests lined up that are going to be fun. We're going to be going into weird corners of indie history that I don't think anyone has ever talked about before. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to. We're going to talk about all the movies as time goes on and more. There's a lot of there's more indie stuff out there than people I think people even realize. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe there'll be another indie movie before we're done. <laughs> who knows? We don't know. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? We'll be back to Star Wars next week, though. So if you listen to this whole thing, you're like, "Where are they getting to Star Wars?" Don't don't worry, that'll be next week. So still plenty of the Star Wars out there for us to, uh, to talk about. So well. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Anything goes. Henry Jones. Julia. Julia.